I'm Austin Lugo. I'm Andrew Harp. This is With Nothing to Say. And let's talk about movies. With over 3,000 films log, Andrew and I, best friends since middle school, have dedicated our lives to watching, making, and talking about movies. Each week, Andrew and I handpick a movie he's seen, I've seen, or neither of us have seen, and dive deep into anything and everything to wannabe cinephils could ever think of. From horror to dramedy, we do it all. So join us as we talk about everything movies, and maybe you too can become a bona fide cinephil. Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. My name is Art, and I am currently hiding in my cozy Christmas cabin, trying to avoid any kind of spoilers for Doctor Strange 2, which is out this weekend. If all goes according to plan, by the time this episode drops, I will have seen it, and you can spoil the daylights out of the movie. But <laughs> until then, let's not. With Christmas still being something like eight months away, I have to have something exciting to look forward to. And so the MCU is what I fill the void with. I'm really looking forward to this episode as I read the third portion of The Burglar and the Blizzard by Alice Miller. So I just want to thank you all for enjoying the story and for uh, those of you who have reached out to me. So I have been a little behind on the publishing schedule that I wanted for last month and this month. This story should really have been released all in April, but life being what it is, I got a little behind on that, but no stress because this is supposed to be fun, right? <laughs> and I'm having a blast. I hope you are as well. Some of the things that have been keeping me busy uh, this past month, Grace has joined uh, track. We were able to go see a couple of her track meets, which run um, into the evening, which is typically the time I like to do my recording. But she did great, and uh, she gave it her all and uh, was able to overcome some even anxiety and, and nervousness about doing it. So very proud of her. She also turned 13 years old in April, near the end of April. So that was an emotional moment for sure. Otherwise, just uh, the busyness of spring with uh, all that it brings, things have been keeping me hopping. And my oldest son, he, he is in college, and he had a couple of concerts that he did with his uh, college choir and orchestra, um, including one of the concerts. He actually wrote three of the pieces that were played, and so we're very proud. And then my, my middle son, he um, had some artwork entered into a, a school uh, competition for uh, local schools that all participate in this conference competition, and he won a, a couple of ribbons for some of his artwork. So I'm very proud of all my kids, and they have for sure been keeping me pretty busy this this past month. But on we go to May. And as we wrap up this story and we look ahead for this month of reading, uh, I just want to remind you that the reading prompt for May is the Hallmark Movie uh, Challenge. And quite simply, you just need to read a book that's cozy, a book that you find cozy. It could be a Christmas book. It can be a non-Christmas book. I know there are plenty in both genres. And what I'm going to be reading this month is a book that's in the Beacon Bake Shop series written by Darcy Hanna. And she's written a, a cozy mystery series set in Michigan. It tells the story of Lindsay, who is owns a lighthouse, and she runs a bakery out of her lighthouse. And then um, dead bodies start showing up. 
murder she wrote style. So it's just a great series, and I'll be talking about those at uh, in greater length uh, later on in the month because I'm going to have Darcy on the show, and I'm going. Uh, we sit down for an interview, and it was just a lot of fun. And if you want to get a sneak peek of that, I shared on my Cozy Christmas Facebook page uh, the video and and podcast link for my um, Bookshelf Odyssey podcast, uh, which is the other podcast I do. And I had Darcy on that podcast, and we talked about her series as a whole. But coming up at the end of the month here in May, we're going to be talking about Christmas, and her uh, one of the books in the series is a Christmas book, which has so far been my favorite one of the series. It, it's very good, a very enjoyable read. Um, but we'll talk more about that as the weeks uh, progress through May. But I think it's a series that you would enjoy if you like that cozy atmosphere. Um, it really stands out above a lot of the other cozy mysteries I've read as, as just being a, a good quality cozy mystery. I mean, it has all the usual tropes and everything uh, that we come to to love about cozy mysteries, but um, just really well done. Uh, I will have the link to that episode to my other podcast on the Facebook page, and I think it's on my Twitter feed as well. All right. Well, uh, I want to be able to leave time to finish up the rest of the story. We have chapters five through seven of The Burglar and the Blizzard by Alice Miller. And where we left off, uh, Jeffrey had indeed gone up to McVeigh's cabin. And much to his surprise or not, he finds McVeigh's sister is in fact real and is there. So Jeffrey brings Cecilia back with him through the cold weather, uh, through the blizzard, back to his house. and. They warm up by the fire, and I love the corny, just the corny love story this has turned into as well. It's just, it's, I don't know, this has given me some cozy vibes. This would make a great story to to fulfill the, the May prompt as well, if you'd like to use it for that. But, uh, so we're going to pick up where we left off, of course, and find out what happens next, as uh, Jeffrey has to weigh some decisions. We're left not really knowing if Jeffrey's going to tell Cecilia about her brother or not. And how is this all going to end once the blizzard stops? Will they even take time to celebrate Christmas? Well, these are things that the story will answer. So if you're ready, let's go ahead and make ourselves comfortable and grab a cup of tea and settle in by the Christmas fire as we enjoy the final part of The Burglar and the Blizzard by Alice Dewar Miller Chapter 5 Cecilia was not in the library, and McVeigh, without comment on her absence, turned at once to his book. If you won't think me impolite, Holland, I'll go on with my stern. Conversation is always a great temptation to me, but I have so little opportunity to read that I feel I ought not to neglect it, especially as your books are so unusual. He settled himself to Tristram Shandy with appreciation, but Geoffrey could not read. He sat, indeed, with the book open on his knee, but his eyes were fixed on the carpet. The knowledge of the girl's presence in his house distracted him like a lantern swung before his eyes. He gave himself up to steeping himself in his emotion, which, in some situations, is the nearest thing possible to thinking. Geoffrey's success with women had been conspicuous as was natural, for he was good-looking, rich, and apparently susceptible. As a matter of fact, however, his susceptibility 
was purely superficial, and for this very reason he was not afraid to give it full sway. The deeply susceptible man learns to be cautious, to distrust his feelings, but Geoffrey had always too truly recognized his fundamental indifference to have any reason to distrust himself. He had never been in love. Like Ferdinand, he, for different virtues, had liked many women, although in his case it had not always been necessarily virtues that had attracted him. But there were certain women who had always appealed to him for some conspicuous quality or characteristic, who for one reason or another pleased him, to which one side or another of his nature responded. He had often thought that if he could make up a composite woman of all of them, he might be in great danger of falling in love. But now he was aware that his whole nature responded to the attraction of the girl upstairs, as a dog answers instinctively to the call of its master. He could say to himself that she was this or that, brave and beautiful, but he knew that such qualities were but an insignificant part of the total effect. His reason could find causes enough to approve her. But something more important had gone ahead and made straight the paths of his reason, something which transcended it and which, in case of a divergence between the two, his reason could never overcome. For, of course, the realization of McVeigh and all his presence implied fell coolly upon his exaltation. By no means had Geoffrey said to himself in so many words that he was in love, far less had anything so definite as marriage crossed his mind, he was too much in love to be so practical. He only knew that McVeigh's merest existence was a contamination in a tragedy. He had been sitting thus for some time, when he heard her step on the stairs. He rose and met her in the hall, whence he could still keep his eye on McVeigh's studious figure in the library. She was dressed in his sister's sables, ready for departure. They looked at each other a moment in silence, he appealingly, she with a cold blankness that seemed to say that not even a look could make her take further notice of him as a living being. Have you really been thinking that I wanted to turn you out? He said with directness. I have not been thinking about the matter at all, she answered, turning her head a little aside from his direct gaze. But I do think so, of course. After all, why should you not wish it? Y you think me likely to want anything that would part us? That is the way my manner strikes you? He was surprised to find his voice not absolutely steady. She favored him with a short stare from under her lids. You seem to forget that I have your own word, that you insisted on our going. Possibly you have changed your mind. But I have made mine up. She made a motion as if to pass and go on toward the library. I have changed so completely since I saw you, said Geoffrey, that I scarcely recognize life in this, this ecstasy. That is the only change. Am I likely to turn you out when I have been waiting all my life for you to come? It had been with her own dream, her own credulity, with which she had been fighting quite as much as with Holland and the charm began to work once again. She said very coolly, You are very kind, but as you said, we ought to be starting, or have you forgotten saying that? Be just. You knew I was going too. You knew I urged our going, because... Be because... Well, why? Her look was still from half-shut lids, but the lines of her mouth had softened by not a little. There is... 
a danger of being snowed up here. Now, I appreciate that there would be a greater danger in starting out so late, and, and equally desperate for me, whatever we do. Desperate? If you only want an opportunity to think so meanly of me, to hate me, as your look said, I do not hate you. You are very eager to be rid of my company. I did not understand. You are going to stay? Until we can go safely. Not longer? As this was a question obviously impossible to answer directly, she said, We are under sufficiently large obligations to you already. And Geoffrey, about to answer, looked up and saw McVeigh was observing them with satisfaction so that words froze on his lips. Here was the whole bitterness of the situation concentrated. To be observed at all in a moment of genuine emotion was bad enough, but to be observed by one who so plainly hoped to profit was unbearable. Never, said Geoffrey to himself at that glance of triumph from McVeigh's clear little eyes, never should any influence lead him to let a thief slip through his fingers. He realized, too, for the first time, that he could not hope for another word alone with Cecilia. McVeigh must always be present. It was a hideous sort of revenge that every waking minute must be spent in the man's company. Geoffrey had not appreciated the full meaning of his instructions to McVeigh to keep always in sight. Not a word or a look could be exchanged without McVeigh's seeing and rejoicing. Yet, in spite of his irritation, he could not but admire the sort of affectionate swagger with which McVeigh rose to greet her, as if the brother of so tender a creature must remember his responsibility. Well, my dear, he said, sitting down beside her on the sofa. Feel better? Really a terrible experience. Holland has just been telling me about it, saying how well you behaved. Geoffrey favored him with a scowl behind his back. A perfect heroine, uh, so he says. Mr. Holland is very kind, said the girl. Kind, cried McVeigh enthusiastically. Kind, I should rather think he was. Why, I could give you a instances of his kindness. You need not trouble, said Geoffrey. McVeigh smiled at his sister as much as to say, what did I tell you? So modest, so unassuming. To Geoffrey, this sort of thing was unspeakably painful. He was willing enough to meet McVeigh in a grim interchange over his strange combination of facility and crime, of doom and triviality. But when it became any question of playing upon Cecilia's unconsciousness of the situation, he writhed. Yet a little discernment would have shown him how natural, how encouraging, from his own point of view, her unconsciousness was. To fall in love thoroughly is sufficiently disconcerting. Which of us needs to be told that it is an absorbing process, that life looks different, and that all past experiences must be reviewed in the light of this unexpected illumination? And of this is true of the more usual forms of the great passion, what is to be said of a girl who, in a single day, sees and loves a rescuer, a handsome, powerful young creature who comes to her with all the attributes of a soldier and a prince, who comes not only to save and protect, but as host and dispenser of all comfort and beauty? It was not to be wondered at that she was dazzled and aware of one fact, one personality, that far from being able to draw shrewd conclusions from the little happenings going on before her, she was but dimly aware of the existence of her brother, of the world, of anything but Geoffrey. 
presently, she said, as of trying to call up the picture. And this is where you sat all night? And if the thought was interesting to her, it was not on account of her brother's share in it. Yes, returned McVeigh, springing lightly to his feet. Here we sat discussing plans for your safety. He took a step toward the pair at the fire, and then remembering, stopped. Please move a little back, Holland, he said. I want to get nearer the fire. I'm cold. You can go to the fire, said Geoffrey, with a gesture of permission. Of course you can, said the girl. Mr. Holland is not in your way, Billy. But Billy continued to eye his host. Oh, no you don't, he said warily. Not unless you move back. Do move, there's a good fellow. And Geoffrey laughed and moved, somewhat to the girl's mystification. She forgot to wonder, however, in pursuing the more wonderful train of thought, which had already been occupying her, suppose that their plans for her relief had been decided differently. Suppose her brother had come for her instead of the magnificent stranger, with what different eyes she might now be looking on life. This ecstasy, as Holland had defined it. Curious to know by what accident she had been so blessed, she asked, Why was it, Billy, that you did not come after me yourself? Just what I said to him, replied McVeigh eagerly. If I said once, I said a dozen times. Holland, it is my duty and pleasure. It is my right to go. But, McVeigh shrugged his shoulders. When he once gets an idea into his head, it takes a gimlet to get it out. Upon my word, Billy, the girl said indignantly. I don't think you ought to talk like that, even in fun. You know perfectly well that Mr. Holland only insisted on going because he thought he was better able to bear the physical strain. Physical strain, exclaimed McVeigh, coloring to the roots of his sandy hair from pure annoyance. I don't know what you mean. Holland is, of course, a larger man than I, but not stronger. Oh, well, as far as mere brute force goes, perhaps, but in the matter of bearing physical strain, you betray the most absurd in ignorance. It is well known scientifically that medium-sized men like myself, when their muscles are at all developed, and you know my muscles, are better fitted for endurance than any of these overgrown giants. Then, said she calmly, if you knew you were better fitted, I can't see why you did not go. Now you are not quite fair to your brother, said Geoffrey, interrupting, for McVeigh looked as if he would explode in another moment under the sense of injustice. He did propose going himself, but I would not let him. I, I made it a personal matter. Very personal, replied McVeigh with feeling. I'll just explain how it was. Last night, as soon as I realized how bad the storm was, I made up my mind that I had better attempt to enter the house. I succeeded after some trouble, came to this room, turned on the light, a spooky thing, an empty house, picked up a book, had quite forgotten my position, the world, everything, when a voice at my elbow said, Fond of reading? I was never more surprised in my life. I felt distinctly caught, an interloper, and to make matters worse, I saw that Holland did not at once recognize me. I made every effort to leave, but he would not hear of such a thing. He made it perfectly plain, in fact, that it was his wish to keep me. I yielded. That, I think, Holland, is a pretty accurate account of the night's proceeding, isn't it? Geoffrey did not answer. His soul rebelled at the farce, and at McVeigh's irrepressible enjoyment of his own abilities. As Holland met the twinkling joy of those small blue eyes, he wondered if he would not be doing mankind a favor by putting a bullet into McVeigh before the dawn of another day. 
Unconscious of this possibility, McVeigh continued to his sister. Well, it has all been a painful experience for you, my dear, a long and dangerous adventure for a woman, but you are at least warmly clad. A handsome coat, is it not, Holland? Very, said Geoffrey, chillingly. Now that coat, McVeigh went on, unchilled, was a real bargain. I may say I paid nothing for it, little more than the trouble of taking it home. Although from another point of view, its price was pretty high. Really, Billy, I don't think Mr. Holland is interested in our bargains. In some he is. Yes, indeed, said Geoffrey, eyeing McVeigh with a warning glance. I think I know of just about a dozen people who will want a circumstantial account of all of them. Now there, Holland, there is one of your Philistine words. Circumstantial. It takes all poetry, all imagination out of a subject. Do you know the only connotation, are you familiar with that word? The only suggestion it has for me is a jury? He scored distinctly. Geoffrey had nothing to say in reply. It was McVeigh himself who, disliking a pause, observed that it was almost time to begin on the preparation of the Christmas dinner. They all rose as if glad of a break. As they passed out of the door, Geoffrey laid his hand on McVeigh's arm. Why do you deliberately try to exasperate me? he said. McVeigh smiled. Why do little boys lay their tongues to lampposts in freezing weather? Don't I amuse you? Be candid. No. McVeigh looked regretful. As I remembered you, Holland, as a boy, you had more sense of humor, he said gently. Chapter 6 In the kitchen, McVeigh made it evident that his talents were for organization rather than for hard labor. He drew a chair near the wall and, tilting back at his ease, watched Geoffrey and Cecilia at work. Geoffrey, engaged in lighting the range fire, looked up at her as she moved about filling the kettle and washing out pots and pans, and thought that he and she presented the aspect of a young couple of the laboring class, with no further ambition than to keep a roof over their heads. He almost had it in his heart to wish that they were. She proved herself infinitely more capable than the two men had been, discovering tins of butter and soup and sardines, a package of hominy, apples and potatoes in the cellar, and an old box of wedding cake, which, with a burning brandy sauce, she declared would serve very well for plum pudding. Manual labor was such a novelty to Geoffrey that he soon forgot even his irritation against McVeigh, and the triangular intercourse was more friendly than before, until marred by an unfortunate incident. He was standing in the middle of the kitchen with a steaming pot in each hand, when McVeigh, without warning, advanced toward him, handkerchief in hand, exclaiming, My dear fellow, such a smudge on your forehead. Pray, allow me. Look out, roared Geoffrey, realizing how easily in another second his revolver might be taken from him. The tone was alarming, and McVeigh sprang back ten feet. I, I was afraid of burning you with the soup, Geoffrey explained politely. I own you made me jump, said McVeigh. The girl said nothing, and Geoffrey feared the incident had made an unfortunate impression on her. It appeared to be completely forgotten, however when they presently sat down to their Christmas dinner, of which they all expressed themselves as inordinately proud. There was canned soup and sardines and toasted biscuits, canned corned beef, potatoes and fried hominy, bacon and a potato salad, a bottle of champagne, and finally, the wedding cake. Now to say that by the time 
dessert was put on table, McVeigh was drunk, would be to do him a gross injustice. All the more genial side of this nature, however, was distinctly emphasized. The better part of a quart of champagne had not produced any signs of intoxication. His eye was clear, his speech perfect, and he was more than usually aware of his own powers, confident of appreciation. As he finished his share of cake, he rose to his feet and leaning the tips of his fingers on the table addressed Geoffrey. My dear Holland, he said, I will not wish you a Merry Christmas, for it has already been as merry as it has lain within my poor capacity to make it. Let me, however, express my own gratitude to you for this delightful occasion. You have referred to the fair as meager, to our position as constrained, but believe me, I am not exaggerating when I say that I so little agree with you that I am confident that, during many of the remaining years of my life, I shall look back to this Christmas as one of unusual luxury and freedom. It is perhaps the warm glow of friendship that gilds all small discomforts. For in situations like ours, characters are tested, and yours, Holland, he paused impressively, has stood the test. Geoffrey bowed gratefully, and McVeigh continued, I have here a slight token in honor of the day. It is of little pecuniary value, but between us, Holland, pecuniary value is no longer mentioned. I feel that it will be recommended to you more than mere worth could recommend it by the fact that it is peculiarly my own, my own as few human possessions can be said to be. I offer it, he said, drawing from his pocket a square flat little package, with best wishes for a happy new year. The idea that McVeigh was going to give him a present had never crossed Geoffrey's mind, and now it struck him as so characteristic so perfectly in keeping with McVeigh's consuming desire to triumph in minor matters that he was able to smile pleasantly and receive it appropriately. He exchanged a glance of real appreciation with the donor and received a grave bow in return. Cecilia smiled too. I don't know exactly why you should think Mr. Holland wants your picture, Billy, she said. It may be of the greatest service to him, said McVeigh. The girl turned to Geoffrey. I can't make a speech like Billy's, she said, but I have a small present for you which I hope you won't despise, because it is not new. I mean, I have worn it myself for some time, and I hope you will now, in remembrance of the time when you sheltered the houseless. She held out on her pink palm a flat gold pencil with a single topaz set in the top. The thing was of some value, and Geoffrey, looking up, caught McVeigh's eye in which danced such a delicious merriment that Geoffrey's half-formed question was answered. McVeigh was undergoing such paroxysms of delight at the idea that Geoffrey was about to become a receiver of stolen goods that he could not well conceal it. And instinctively, Geoffrey drew back his hand. The next moment he realized that he must at once accept the gift with decent gratitude, whatever he might choose to do with it afterward. But unfortunately, the girl had noticed his hesitation. She said nothing whatsoever. But she closed her hand on the pencil, rose from the table, and left them to dispose of the remains of the feast as best they could. McVeigh, as if he had observed nothing, threw himself at once into the part of a waiter, tucked a napkin round his waist, flung another over his arm, and began to clear the table. Wait a moment, said Geoffrey, who had not followed his example. I have something to say to you. I see you are in possession of my sentiments in regard to your sister. I think her a wonder, 
That's all it is necessary for you to know. Quite naturally, Holland. She is. She is. I won't discuss that with you. The point is that you seem to be under the impression that this will do you some good. Well, it won't. You stand just where you did before. You go to jail when the snow melts. Then I settle my affairs. McVeigh's face fell. Really, Holland, he said. I don't see how, if you are fond of a woman you can want, to spare her such a brother as you, think it over. There are worse brothers than I, replied McVeigh. How many men would have sacrificed what I have sacrificed in order to keep her comfortably? Not many, I hope. She is extraordinarily fond of me. Perhaps. You see that she has nobody else to be fond of. We can scarcely say that now, returned McVeigh encouragingly. I won't discuss it with you. You can't mean to tell me that you are in love with my sister and mean to send me to state's prison? I mean exactly that. Why, she'd never forgive you. Geoffrey thought this so probable that he had no answer to give, and presently McVeigh, who had been grumbling over the matter to himself, asked, Are you serious, Holland? What do you suppose I am? Geoffrey roared, and McVeigh, shaking his head, went on with the work of clearing the table. He was very silent and abstracted, and for the first time seemed to realize his position. When they had put away the last plate, Geoffrey said, Now come to the library. I am going to give you a pipe. Confound you. A pipe? Why? Because I want to give your sister something, and I think she would be more apt to take it. I am afraid she is rather offended by the way you treated her little gift. As a matter of fact, I was the person to be offended, for I had given her the pencil. A pretty little thing, singularly like one which you may have seen Mrs. Don't tell me where you took it from. I don't want to know. Come and get your pipe and mind you are grateful. A pipe, observed McVeigh thoughtfully. I think I'll take that large meerschaum on the mantelpiece. Geoffrey laughed. I think you won't, he answered. The best pipe I own. No, indeed, you'll take a horrid little one that won't draw. It'll be just the thing for you. No, said McVeigh, no. You must give me the big one. Otherwise, I shall make it appear that you promised the other to me and turned mean at the last moment. And I can do it, Holland. His little eyes gleamed at the thought. I shall say, My dear fellow, I'm glad you changed your mind about the Meerschaum. It was, as you say, too handsome for a man in my position. That will make her mad if anything will. You know she is not quite satisfied with the way you treat me, as it is. This was quite true, and Geoffrey, remembering that the object of the gift was to please the girl, reluctantly agreed to part with his favorite pipe. The affair went off well. McVeigh affected to hesitate over accepting so handsome an offering, and Geoffrey pressed it upon him with a good grace. As far as his present to the girl was concerned, he found himself less and less willing to make it in McVeigh's presence, and more and more unable to think of any way of getting rid of him except murder or the cedar closet. His anxiety was rendered more acute by the fact that once or twice he could not help suspecting that Cecilia, in spite of her anger, would have been glad of a few words alone with him also. Before very long, she suggested that McVeigh should take her hat and coat upstairs for her. Certainly I will, cried Billy, springing up with alacrity and was at the door before Holland's warning shout, McVeigh, stopped him. Let me take it up for your sister, he said wardingly. Oh, not at all. Let me, replied McVeigh courteously. Couldn't hear of it, returned Geoffrey. 
By this time, they were both outside of the door, and Jeffrey closed it with a snap. You would, would you? He said angrily. Now Holland, said McVeigh, as one who intends to introduce reason into an irrational confusion, this is exactly a case in point. I am, by nature, a gallant man. I forgot all about your instructions. I wonder, said Geoffrey. It was instinctive to do my sister the little favor she asked. Yes, and I doubt if I should have acted differently if your pistol had been at my head. She asked me. That was enough. I've warned you once. Holland, I think, you'll excuse my telling you, that you have a very unfortunate manner at times. They went upstairs together and were descending when Geoffrey stopped, with his eyes on the grand piano which stood in the hall below them. Can you play, he said. McVeigh brightened at once. He had been looking a little glum since his last speech. Yes, he answered, I can. Well, I'm not a professional, you understand, but for an amateur I am supposed to have as much technique and a good deal more sentiment than most. I don't care how you play, said Holland. There is a piano. Sit down and play and don't stop. No, Holland, no, said the other with unusual firmness. That I will not do. No artist would. Ask anyone. It is impossible to play in public without practice. I have not touched the instrument for over a year. You can do all the practicing you like here and now. You can play finger exercises for all I care. All I insist is that you should make a noise so that I'll know you are there. Well, said McVeigh, yielding, you must remember to make allowances. Not the best musician could sit down after a year. However, I dare say it will come back to me quicker than to most people. You must make allowances for my lack of practice. There is only one thing I won't make allowances for, and that is your moving from that music stool. He opened the piano, and McVeigh sat down waving his fingers to loosen the joints. He sat with his head on one side, as if waiting to discover which of the great composers was about to inspire him. Then he dropped lightly upon the notes, lifting his chin, as if surprised to find that an air of Schubert's was growing under his fingers. Geoffrey was astonished to find that he really was, as he said, something of an artist. He waited until he was fairly started and then returned to the library. Is that Billy? said the girl. It must be a great pleasure to him to have a piano again. He is so fond of music. He was not as eager to play as I to have him, said Geoffrey. He came back quietly and stood looking down at her for a moment. Then he said, stretching out his hand, I want my Christmas present. I have none to give you. You had. I've changed my mind. Why? For the first time she looked at him. Mr. Holland, she said, you must think me singularly unobservant. Do you suppose I don't see that you dislike my brother? You refused the pencil. You did refuse it plainly enough, because Billy had given it to me. I will not offer it to you again. I know that Billy sometimes does rub people up the wrong way, but I should think anyone of any discernment could see that his faults are only faults of manner. She said this almost appealingly, and Geoffrey, unable to agree, turned with something like a groan, and resting his elbows on the mantelpiece, covered his face with his hands. Do you suppose that he does not see how you feel toward him? Are you by any chance assuming that he bears with your manner on account of his own comfort? You might at least be generous or acute enough to see that it is only for my sake that he exercises so much self-control. He does not want to make my position here more unendurable by quarreling with you. 
It makes me furious to see that you force him to put up with you, the way you speak to him and look at him as if he were your slave or disobedient dog. His self-control is wonderful. I admire him more than I can say. And is my self-control nothing? he asked, without moving his hands from his face. Yours? I don't see any exercise of yours. Circumstances have put us at your mercy. You are rich and fortunate, and as insolent as you choose to be. Self-control? I don't see any evidence of it. No, he said, and turning, looked at her with a violence that might have set her on the right track. Under his eyes, she looked down and probably in the instant forgot all that she had been saying and feeling. For when he added, I love you, her hands moved toward his, and she made no resistance when he took her in his arms. Chapter 7 McVeigh was left so long at the piano that he finally resorted to a series of discords in order to recall himself to Holland's mind. His existence, if he had only realized the fact, was so completely forgotten that he might have made his escape with a good half-hour to spare before either of the others appreciated that the music had ceased. Not knowing this, however, he did not dare stop his playing for an instant, until sheer physical fatigue interfered. It was at this point that the discords began, and brought Geoffrey into the hall. The disposal of McVeigh for the night was a question to which Geoffrey had given a great deal of thought. The cedar closet presented itself as a safe prison, but in the face of McVeigh's repeated assertions that the air had barely sufficed to support him during his former occupancy, it looked like murder to insist. Jeffrey, finally, when bedtime came, locked him in a dressing room off his own room. The window, the room was on the third floor, gave an empty space, and against the only door he placed his own bed, so that escape seemed tolerably difficult. And to all other precautions, Jeffrey added his own wakefulness. Although toward morning, weariness triumphed over excitement and he fell asleep. He was waked by an insistent knocking at his door, and he heard his name called by Cecilia. He sprang up and found her standing in the hall. She was wrapped in her sable coat, but shivering from cold or fear. There is someone getting into the house. I heard a window open and steps on the piazza below my room. What can it be? Geoffrey flung himself past her. The instinct of the hunter joined to the obstinacy of his nature maddened him at the notion of McVeigh's escape. On the opposite side of the house, there was a piazza, and on the roof of this, a neighboring window opened. He threw it back and climbed out. The snow had stopped, and the moon was shining. Paling a little before the approaching dawn, Geoffrey could see a figure stealing quickly across the snow. There was no question of its identity. His revolver which he had snatched from under his pillow and brought with him, he at once leveled on the vanishing form. His finger was on the trigger when he felt a hand on his arm. His finger was on the trigger when he felt a hand on his arm. Leaning out of the window behind him, the girl caught his arm. Don't fire, she said. Don't you see it is Billy? There was a pause, the fraction of a second, but momentous, for Geoffrey realized that all his threats to McVeigh had been idle that with that touch on his arm he could not shoot. Nevertheless, he raised his voice and shouted thunderously, McVeigh! The figure turned, hesitated, saw, perhaps, the gleam of the moon on steel and began to retrace his steps. Steadily, with the revolver still upon him, he moved back to the house. Under the piazza, he stopped and waved his hand. 
I'm afraid they got away from us, Holland. I did my best. There was a burglar then, said the girl in the little whisper of recent fright. By heaven, he shall not trouble you, returned Holland, with more earnestness than seemed to be required. He left her and went down to meet McVeigh. You were just about half a second ahead of a bullet, he remarked, ushering him into the hall. To be caught and brought back in so ignominious a position that Geoffrey looked to see even McVeigh at a disadvantage, but looked in vain. The aspect worn was a particularly self-satisfied one. I was aware I took a risk, he answered. I took it gladly for my sister's sake. For your sister's sake? Yes, and yours. Be honest, Holland. What could be so great a relief to you as to find I had disappeared? You are too narrow-minded, too honorable, you would say, to connive at it, but you would be delighted to know that you need not prosecute me. <laughs> if I shot you, I should be saved the trouble of prosecuting. But at what a cost? I refer to my sister's regard. No, no, the thing, if you had only been quick enough to see it, was for me to escape. It was a risk, of course, but a risk I gladly took for my sister's sake. I would take longer ones for her. Do you mean that? Of course. Then take this revolver and go out and shoot yourself. McVeigh looked very thoughtful. Then he said gravely, No, no, Holland. To take a risk is one thing. To kill myself, quite another. I have always had a strong prejudice against suicide. I think it a cowardly action and it would be no help to you. She would not believe that I had committed suicide. She knows my views on the subject and could imagine no motive. No, that would not do at all. I'm surprised at the suggestion. It is against my principles. Your principles? Geoffrey sneered. Nevertheless, he was not a little altered in opinion. It had been something of a shock to him to find that he could not shoot at the critical instant. It had shaken his faith in himself. He began to doubt if he would be capable of sending the man to state's prison when Cecilia besought his pity. His own limitations faced him. He was not the relentless judge he had supposed himself. Yet, on the other hand, the remembrance of Vaughn and the other men he was representing held him to his idea of justice. Sit down, he said suddenly, turning to McVeigh, and write me out a list of everything you have stolen in this neighborhood and where it is and how it may be obtained. Yes, I know it is difficult, but you had better try to do it, for on the completeness of your list depends your only chance of avoiding the law. If I can return all properly, perhaps. I have a mine in Mexico, a hell on earth, where you can go if you prefer it to penal servitude. There won't be much difference except for the publicity of a trial. I have a man there who, when I give him his orders, would infinitely rather shoot you than take any risk of your getting away. Which will you have? Can you ask, Holland? which will be easier for my sister. Sit down and write your list, then. Hmm, an interesting occupation, mining, observed McVeigh as he opened the portfolio. After this, for a long time, nothing was heard but the soft noise of the pencil and an occasional comment from the writer. A rare piece, that. I parted with it absurdly low, but the dealer was a connoisseur. Appealed to my artistic side. Things had gone on thus for perhaps an hour when a step sounded outside and the doorbell rang. Both men jumped to their feet. My God, Holland, said McVeigh, if that is the police, keep your wits about you or we are lost. It was a revelation to Geoffrey to find how completely, as his alarm showed, he had cast in his interests with McVeigh's. He stepped forward in silence and opened the door. 
Not the police, but a man in plain clothes was standing there. Oh, I'm glad to see you're safe, Mr. Holland, he said. There has been great anxiety felt for your safety. I am a detective working on the Vaughn and Marheim cases. I got word to come and look you up as you did not get back to the gardener's cottage the night before last. The snow detained me, said Geoffrey slowly. Come in, come in, friend, said McVeigh briskly. You must be cold. It speaks well for the professional eye that the detective, after studying McVeigh for an instant, asked, I did not catch this gentleman's name. Who is he? There was a barely perceptible pause. Then Geoffrey answered coolly, That is the man you are after. Are you crazy, Holland? shouted McVeigh. What, the Von Burglar? You caught him without assistance? Envy and admiration struggled on the detective's countenance. I must congratulate you, sir. Geoffrey allowed himself the luxury of a groan. You needn't, he said. I am no subject for congratulation. I can't even prosecute him, confound him, for several reasons. We were at school together, and I can take no steps in the matter. But I can, said the detective. Indeed, it's my duty to. No, said Geoffrey, nor can you. This man cannot be sent to prison. Yes, I know, it is compounding a felony. Well, sit down, and we'll compound it. I could not agree to anything of the kind, said the detective. I don't see exactly what you can do about it, Geoffrey was deliberate and very polite. For reasons which I can't explain, but which you would appreciate, leave me no choice. I have to save this man from jail. If you intend to work against me, I shall simply let him escape at once. Don't draw your revolver, please. I prefer to be the only person with a weapon in my hand. He has made a list of all the things he has stolen, and I shall see that they are returned to their owners at any cost. Will you undertake to get him safely to a mine I own in Mexico? Once there, he can't get away. It is 45 miles from a railway. If you accomplish this, I will give you 10000 to make up for the reward you didn't get. 5000 down and 5000 at the end of a year. I don't know what to say, said the man. It sounds like a bribe. It is, said Geoffrey coolly. I never received such a proposition, returned the man. That scheme won't do, Holland, put in McVeigh. Can't you see it lays you open to blackmail? From you, said Geoffrey. I had thought of that, but you can't blackmail me at La Santa Ana, and if you get away and come close enough to blackmail me, I'll put you in prison without a moment's hesitation. I shall be in a position by that time to take care of the feelings of other people concerned. You don't understand me, answered McVeigh. I meant blackmail from this man. Oh, said Geoffrey civilly. I am convinced he is not a blackmailer. And besides, he won't get his second 5,000 for a year. And as I was saying to you, after a year, I don't so much mind having the whole thing known. My reputation will stand it, I think, if yours and his will. I'm no blackmailer, said this detective. If I accept, I'll be on the square. If you do, let me offer you a piece of advice, observed Geoffrey. And that is not to take your eye off that man for a single instant. He is a slippery customer, and you run a fair chance of not seeing my money at all if you give him the smallest loophole. The detective considered McVeigh carefully from head to foot. Then he said gravely, Is there any way of getting to this place of yours by water? I don't see my way to taking this customer in a Pullman car. If he chooses to slip overboard from a boat, why, no one would be any the worse, unless maybe the sharks. Very true, agreed Geoffrey, amiably. Fortunately, you can get a steamer in New York. 
It soon became apparent that the detective failed to see any good reason for declining so advantageous an offer as Jeffrey's, and they were presently deep in the discussion of their plans. McVeigh, meanwhile, studying the map with unfeigned interest in the situation of his future residence. Cecilia, fortunately, gave them plenty of time for their arrangements, for she had fallen asleep again after the alarm of the early morning, and the men must have been talking for two hours when she appeared at the library door. She cast a look of surprise at the addition to their party, and Geoffrey saw with a sort of paralysis that she was inclined to set him down as the burglar whose footsteps she had heard in the night. To prevent any betrayal of this opinion, Geoffrey advanced a few steps to meet her, although as he did so, he realized that he had nothing to answer when she asked, as of course she did ask, Who is that? A sort of desperation, the cowardice that will sometimes attack the brave took hold of Geoffrey. He looked at her hopelessly and would perhaps in, an, in another instant have told her the truth had not McVeigh, not the least disconcerted, taken the lead. This, Cecilia, he said exuberantly, laying his hand on the detective's shoulder, is my old friend Picklebody, uh, Henderson Picklebody. You have heard his name often enough, and he, and he yours, too. Hey, Henderson, in the old Makita days? The detective, whose name was George P. Cook, was so taken up with his surprise at the apparition of a beautiful woman that he scarcely heard McVeigh. He began to guess something of the motives that led Holland to shield this offender against the law, nor had he ever found it unwise to yield to the whims of young millionaires. Cecilia, who was too gentle or too politic to betray the fact that she heard the interesting name of Picklebody for the first time, remarked in a tone as cheerful as she could make it, I suppose that if Mr. Picklebody could get in, we can get out now. Can and will, rejoined McVeigh, beamingly. Hen comes as he has always come to his friends as a rescuer. I seem to require a great deal of rescuing, said the girl, looking up at the monopolist in the art who had so far said nothing. Ah, but you don't understand, my dear, went on McVeigh, ruthlessly cutting into the look which the lovers were exchanging. You don't yet understand how fortunate we are in our friends. Henderson did not, it is true, come to find me. It was the greatest coincidence his meeting me here. It seems that he and Holland are both interested in a mine in Mexico. And what do you think? McVeigh paused and rubbed his hands. Really, we have the kindest friends. They have been arranging between them to offer me a job down there. What do you think of that? Cecilia, who had been trying to imagine any future after they left the shelter of the Greystone house, would have answered if she had been thoroughly candid that she thought Mexico was a terrible long distance away but she only observed. How very kind of them. I am sure we shall like Mexico. There, there, do you hear that? We, gentlemen, cried McVeigh, throwing up his hands. I cannot leave my sister alone, deserted. Consider it all off. Oh, I wasn't to go? asked Cecilia, looking up with more enthusiasm. My dear, replied McVeigh, I must own that I was base enough to consider a plan that would separate us. The mine, it seems, is no place for ladies, but we will think no more about it. I see by your manner that your feelings... Dear Billy, said the girl gently, you must not give it up. You know that I can always go to the Lees until, until I get a position. And nothing is so important as that you should have work that is satisfactory to you. Of course, you must accept. Did you ever hear anything so noble? Asked McVeigh. 
Yes, I suppose I ought to accept. So they both tell me. I must go, mustn't I, Hen? Well, it looks like it would be better for you if you did, replied the detective, who had fortunately his legitimate share of American humor. There is another point, Cecilia, McVeigh went on. If I do accept, I shall have to leave at once. When did you say, Hen? Train to New York this afternoon. Steamer sails tomorrow. Oh, dear, that's very sudden, said Cecilia. At a word from you, dear, I'll give it up, remarked McVeigh. No, no, of course not. I should never forgive myself. You must go. Perhaps it is all the better that I did not know beforehand. It saves me just yet that amount. We've no time to lose, remarked McVeigh briskly. If we are going to try for that afternoon train, I suppose we can get a sleigh at the gardener's, Holland, if we can struggle as far as that. Well, well, we must hurry off. It was McVeigh who urged on the preparations for departure, hurrying his sister, flitting about the house at such a rate that the detective, who was of a soldier build, found it hard to keep up with. Nor was it only physical agility that McVeigh required of the unfortunate man. Having overheard Geoffrey telling him that he was not to betray the real state of things before Miss McVeigh, under penalty of losing his money, McVeigh took special delight in making him look like a fool, calling upon him to remember happenings which existed only in McVeigh's own fertile brain. What, hen, he would cry suddenly, what was the name of that pretty black-haired girl you were so sweet on? You know, the daughter of the canal boatman. The detective, looking very much alarmed, would of course reply that he did not know what McVeigh was talking about. There, there, McVeigh would reply, soothingly, patting him on the shoulder. I'm not going into the story of the pink blanket. You can always trust my discretion, but I would like just to remember her name. It was so peculiar, a name I never heard before. The detective, who had been respectably married since he was twenty, found himself unable to remember any female names, and finally in agony suggested, Mary? Mary, my dear fellow, no, that was your friend, the paper girl. There is nothing very unusual about Mary, is there, Holland? No, the name I was trying to think of was Ethelberta. Ethelberta. Now you remember, don't you? No, I don't, said the detective crossly, casting an appealing look at Geoffrey. Ah, how sad that is, said McVeigh philosophically. You don't even remember her name, and at one time, well, well. Or again, he would exclaim brightly, studying the detective's countenance. Ah, Henderson, I see the mark of Sweeney's bullet has entirely gone. I was afraid it would leave a scar. Tell my sister that yarn. I think it would interest her. Yes, do, Mr. Picklebody, said the girl politely, and McVeigh, when he had sufficiently tortured his victim, would at length launch out into a story himself. Miserable as the detective was under this sort of treatment, it soon appeared that McVeigh's ease and facility had made an impression on him, and that he looked at his prisoner with a sort of wondering admiration. Now, Holland, are we all ready? Cecilia, have you got your little bag? He began when they were about to depart. Holland, my dear fellow, don't think me interfering if I ask whether you have locked all the doors and windows. Tramps and thieves are so apt to break into shut-up houses, and it would be such a pity if anything happened to any of your pretty things. Ah, what an expanse of snow! beautiful, isn't it? You may talk about your tropical scenery, Hen, but we shan't see anything finer than this the world over. What a contrast the South will be, though, eh, old man? And drawing the detective's arm through his, leaning heavily upon him meanwhile, McVeigh moved forward, talking volubly. 
Cecilia and Jeffrey hesitated a moment, looking up at the house that had seen such momentous changes in their lives. When we come back, it will be spring, said Jeffrey softly. Oh, said the girl in rather a shaky voice. You like me well enough to ask me to stay again? Well enough, said Jeffrey, to ask you to stay forever. And that was The Burglar in the Blizzard by Alice Miller. That was a really delightfully fun story to read. Just McVeigh's behavior through, especially the last couple of chapters, where Jeffrey makes him play the piano, and then after he's played so long, he's getting tired, and he wants to attract their attention because they're down in the library doing who knows what, probably kissing. And so he he starts playing Discord notes just to get them to come up and tell him to quit. And then he keeps trying to wiggle out of situations at every turn. He's trying to get out of going, being sent to Mexico to work in a mine. But in the end, he ends up going. And that part of the story was kind of different. Um, I'm not sure if spending the rest of my life working in a mine, I think maybe that was a little too harsh of, of punishment for him, but he seemed agreeable with it and thought maybe his sister's happiness would be better off that way. It does protect her from any kind of shame or anger. Quite quite a loving gift, actually, of what McVeigh does. And Jeffrey, he's got an interesting sense of justice. I mean, he is hard-nosed Mr. Justice. You know, I was feeling for this for McVeigh by the end of the story. I thought, you know, maybe you should just let him go. But Jeffrey's like, no, he, he stole. He's a thief. He needs to be punished. The right needs to be... The wrong needs to be righted. So he comes up with a scheme, I think, that will help solve his sense of justice, but then also have McVeigh pay a the penalty for what he did. And then in the background of all this is this really amusing love story where Jeffrey is just like already confessing his love to this woman he just met. So some of this is a bit ridiculous, but I think that's part of the charm of the story. Uh, I really liked it. It was so funny and such a fun story to read. I hope you did as well. So uh, if you did, let me know what you think of the story in in the comments. You can come to the Facebook page and find us there. Other places online. I'm on uh, Instagram, Twitter, all those places. So you can find those in the show notes and come and find me and tell me what you think of the story. Well, after all that reading, my voice is feeling a little scratchy. So I think I will go ahead and say farewell for tonight. But as always, be sure to check out the show notes. You can find any details from this episode, any links that I have things I've mentioned, as well as a place you can find to help support the show in a financial way. So again, as always, let me encourage you to be kind to each other and to do good. And let us remember to honor Christmas in our heart and to try to keep it all the year. Have a very Merry Christmas.